The Guardian. Lauren Laverne is turning out to be something of a polymath, from indie pop starlet to radio and TV presenter and now a novelist. She's got her own daily show on Six Music and a column in Grazia magazine. She used to present The Culture Show and earlier this year she arrived on Channel 4's 10 O'Clock Live. She's also synonymous with the BBC's coverage of Glastonbury. Back in the 1990s, she got three A-levels at grade A before ditching university for a record deal with her band Kanicki. And she's now doing the supposedly impossible, combining roles as a wife, mum, presenter, DJ, author and columnist. It's not the easiest trick to pull off. She herself has talked about the sexism of television and how radio is a bit of a boys' club. But the sexism and ageism TV row has been brewing for years. Is it still the case that the British media is too harsh on women? Yes. In terms of the fact that they have to be young and beautiful in order to be on television, yeah, then I definitely do. I think mean, that's completely outrageous. Yeah. Do you think women who work in the media, particularly women who are on TV, are treated fairly? Not the older ones. Nah, go on. Nah. Tell, tell me more. <laughs> well, because they um, they get rid of them when they reach a certain age. They don't front <laughs> any of the major programmes. No, no, they no, don't. They do they? No, they don't. No. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I do like to see the older older ones and and a bit of better cross section. They are prejudiced against the age, aren't they? With women on TV. Yeah, yeah, you have to be. Once old you get a certain attractive yeah, and, yeah. and stuff like that. Whereas the men are attractive. We could get another job if you object to being seen, because on television you are seen. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. A little bit. Go and go and get a nice job on radio or working for the Guardian. We're all very good looking though, well oh, turned out. Exactly. Do you think women on television, they're pressured to look good in, in a way that male presenters probably aren't? Yeah, definitely. Is that a good or a bad thing? That's a terrible thing. Is it? Yeah. Explain why that's a terrible thing. You're encouraging gender binaries, for starters, um, which are completely socially constructed. It's not particularly liberating. Women need to be intelligent, but also it helps to look good on camera, whereas the men, no one really seems to care. Men seem to be able to have gravitas just because of what they say, as opposed to how they look. Whereas women have to have a nice dress on. Yeah. Yeah, you've seen yeah. Sky News. Laurel Laverne, you've said this yourself. Life is unfair, telly is unfair, and women do have a harder time. What is the problem? I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> As I said, life's unfair, telly's unfair. I think uh, generally in the world, women have a harder time. And that's what I mean. And I kind of think TV's a small, it's a kind of obviously a microcosm of, of a broader situation, isn't it? So, you know, to, to Are women... there specific TV unfairnesses, though? TV's like... It's weird because in some ways it's quite it is unfair, but I think there are ways that you can use those unfairnesses to your advantage if you can work out how to. Do you know what I mean? It's for example, you know, it is unfair maybe because people will have expectations of your appearance that they wouldn't have of uh, a peer of yours who was a man. But equally, maybe it's easier uh, because you're there's less women doing the job or less women in, certainly in the kind of world that I operate in you know Six Music there's not as many female DJs for sure as there are male DJs so maybe you stand out a bit more but is the onus on you to be sort of glam male TV presenters do get away occasionally with appearing on TV looking quite dishevelled with their shirt hanging out and you usually I'm not trying to echo sound being sexist here but you know you usually are very very well turned out that seems to be part of your job description well, it's also part of my identity, I think. I like dressing up. I've always liked dressing up. And with my background, that is what you do in the Northeast. You kind of put your best face forward. And, 
you can enjoy getting dressed up and looking nice. And if you do, then, you know, and I do, then maybe maybe I'm lucky. It's <laughs> a more innocent explanation than satisfying the demands of a patriarchal culture. Well, I mean, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> yeah. maybe maybe you're inadvertently doing that by, by joining in, but I don't feel that way. I kind of feel that, you know, clothes and, uh, and dressing up and makeup and stuff, I've just always looked on that as fun. I mean, obviously I understand that there's, there's another side to it, but I've just always enjoyed getting dressed up. You said before yeah. that there are not many female faces or voices at Six Music. Mm-hmm. You're the only woman on the 10 o'clock show. <laughs> I mean, is this a pattern you feel works out across your career that very I, often you are in a small minority of, of women who are in the front line, so to speak? It's always been like that with since day one with everything I've done. And it's just a weird coincidence. I don't really know why. Even when I was in a band, I was in a band with three other girls and my brother, and we were kind of like a girl band, but we were the only the only girls in, in that kind of world. It was very strange. And even when I was a kid... I think and got into music first when I was 14 or whatever you know you went into going into a record shop in the northeast then was not a welcoming experience for a kind of 13 14 year old girl who wanted to go and buy a Stooges record that was not like you know it was you know like the comic book guy on the Simpsons that is not for sale it was that kind of like vibe um so I think maybe like just having toughed that out first up just made it it doesn't seem weird to me you know I mean I kind of part of my growing up was done on tour with a you know a bunch of roadies during the kind of Britpop years when it, when people would genuinely in interviews say oh you're a girl so who writes your songs for you you know you actually did get asked that question lots of times lots and lots of times and so having kind of come through that really you know being the only girl on 10 o'clock live or being the only woman on 10 o'clock live is not it's not really a big deal. But also the thing I would say about 10 o'clock live, and lots of people leveled that accusation at it, you know, we're just four cherries on top of a very big cake. There are lots of other people on the team and actually the team broadly, as the people who make the TV show, is a lot more evenly balanced. That's true of 10 o'clock live. But I wonder at Six Music, do you feel that you are in a more sort of hairy arsed testosterone sort of Definitely not, actually not in the office. I mean, it's a, it's kind of an even split, really. And also the culture at Six Music is just not like that. It's, you know, it's a friendly, kind of open, enthusiastic music fan. What's, the, what's the gender split as far as listeners are concerned? Do you know? I don't know, actually. I don't know. I kind of feel like uh, on my show, the sense I get, what audience-wise, is 50-50. Uh, moving on to your own musical career, uh, which happened, what, 13 or 14 years ago now? Maybe more, yeah, yeah. When you put Kinnicky together when you were in your teens, did you have aims? I mean, did was there things you wanted to do over and above making a racket? I mean, did you have sort of an idea about a career in music, do you oh, think? No, well, we had lied uh, about having a band in the first place. That was, that was <laughs> the uh, genesis of, of the band. Uh, we were at a house party and we met some people from a punk label in Newcastle and we were like, we've got a band because we'd like talked about having a band but obviously we didn't really have one. Did you have the names by that point? No, no, nothing like that. In the um, sense that you were called Lauren Laverne and... No, we didn't have any names or Marie Ducantiago. Marie Ducantiago. I made those up uh, for the first... <laughs> so what happened was, so we lied and said, oh, we've got a band but didn't have a band and then kind of had to put one together and, and, and make a demo because they said, oh, if you've got a band, give us a demo and, you know... Uh, so we're like shit, shit, right? Okay, we've got to we've got to make a demo. So my brother was in bands; he was already making music and had like a little four track and stuff. So we we put the band together, and then made this demo on a tape. You know, gave him the C C ninety or whatever it was, and uh, 
And they said, great, you can play a gig. And we were like amazed that we'd been offered the chance to play a gig at the, the Biker Arms, I think. We were like then so excited by this that we made a poster, right? So we printed off a poster on my dad's computer, like come to our gig and then went and fly posted around the town. And I made the names up for the poster. So we had these four kind of uh, stock weird pictures that we'd got that looked vaguely like us, but it was a little bit village people. So Pete, my brother, who's the drummer, and we called Johnny X because he didn't, you know, he thought it was, I think, I don't know if it was because he just didn't want anybody to know he was in our band or what, but he wanted kind of more of an opaque pseudonym. So, so yeah, we gave him like a, a kind of construction worker type look in the poster. And I just <laughs> made the names up to go underneath. Where did Laverne come from? I think Laverne and Shirley was right, okay. on. At the well, while I was making the poster, it was like a tea time, and I was in my bedroom making this poster, and uh, I think it was just on the telly, and it was actually Lauren Laverne, Lauren Laverne. Are you are you uh, legally Lauren Laverne? No, no. It's you just, are Lauren Gofton when you go to the bank and what? No, you? I'm not actually because I'm married. Um, okay. So I'm quite loose with the old name thing. I haven't had three now. I'm quite <laughs> quite relaxed with it. So you put the band together because you'd sort of talked yourself into a position where you had to do it to prove you meant it, kind of thing. Just sort of because they said, "Oh, give us a tape." So we're like, right. And well, when was then. what year was that? Do you remember? Uh, well, I was 15, coming up for 16. Okay, so, so about three years later, you've got a record deal. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised? Well, we did the, a gig, and then very quickly they said, uh, do you want to do a seven-inch? So we were like, wow. So we made a record, and then John Peel played that. And to be honest, after that point, anything that, that could have happened could not be as exciting as A, having a seven-inch, and B, John Peel playing it on the radio. So... It was weird. It was kind of surprising. But then I think we were only, I mean, I was 18 just when we signed the record deal. And the other two girls in the band, their parents had to sign it for them. They were still underage. They were 17. So um, we were kind of so young that I think in a lot of ways, there's still a lot of the child about you and you don't really, you know, you just kind of take things for granted. I kind of thought it was a bit like, you know, going to be like the beginning of the Jetsons, you know, where they put you on a conveyor belt and they do like robots come down and they make you look a certain way and then they give you a guitar and then it'll come off the end and you'll be a pop star. And, and and really the fact that like I imagined it would be a bit like that, I think at the time I thought maybe that's a stupid thing to think. But now looking back at it, it was like, well, of course I did. I was just a little kid. That was that was what I thought it was going to be like. So I, I don't think we really thought it was that weird. It was just kind of a thing that we were doing. And you arrived in London to live then and pursue this when you were, what, 18? Britpop was still sort of going on just about at that point. Maybe the tail end, yeah, actually. But it's that period of of musical history. So London was quite sort of lively and vibrant and, you know, Camden Excess and all those things. How was that as an 18-year-old to suddenly be moving in those circles? Well, we were on the periphery of it, really. I mean, like, we weren't, you know, hanging out with uh, Blur or anything at that point. So, But certainly, I think you were suddenly in a very kind of grown-up and weird world. I think one of the first times I came to London, we went to, was it Minty we went to see? I think we might have gone to a Minty gig. The conceptual artist person, Lee Bowery's group. Exactly, and you kind of think like, oh my God, London is exactly like people say it is, you know. Which was? Which was, I mean, like as weird as it gets, really. So we were kind of, we saw bits of a world and it was a a strange worldview to get instead of the kind of buffer of, I guess, university and going with a load of other people who were all your age to, to kind of just get drunk and experiment a bit for three years. You kind of go straight to like weird nightclubs and top of the pops and the melody maker and you know and you have to kind of do it there i, I don't know 
were you successful in that? I mean, can you do it there? In other words, can you achieve a sort of process of finding your feet and becoming an adult as one does when one goes to university, supposedly? When you're talking about the melody maker and being on top of the pops and going to see Lee Bowery's group in a nightclub. I think it's always a weird process, that. And I think it's a very, it's an awkward age. You know, it just is. So um, there were elements of that that was that was excruciating in that looking back. I kind of think like, oh, I cringe when I think about it or whatever. But then there were really brilliant bits to that as well. The, the strange thing is that I suppose other people get to do those things and then move on from them and and in a weird way which I completely understand you know as somebody who interviews people for a living I will always need to be contextualized by when you were 18 you were in this band you did this thing do you know what I mean so if someone has a conversation with me that that's cool you know and I'm, I'm glad I did it it was fun but um I think sometimes people think you st- I still wish I was doing that and I and I really don't you know it was kind of like that was that was my period of my university was was that and it was wonderful but I'm glad I'm I'm not still there. Were you glad at the time that I mean Kaniki what released one album? Two. Two albums. Forgive me. One was called At the Club, right? At the Club. Yeah, that was, was that the second one. That was the, no that was the first one that was the, the sort of hit one and then the second one so the second one was <laughs> we did we did the yeah the second one the second one was just was too weird and did it was, underperform as the music biz phrase would have it I think no I don't think anyone had any particular expectations of us it wasn't like you know I mean In Your Car was our biggest hit but that was a very minor hit so it wasn't like we had it wasn't like we had any hits or anything like that it was just we were just sort of like around and because all I was going to ask you was you having said that you think of it like university and that it wasn't meant to last very long and it was good while it lasted and so on. And, you know, you took useful things from it. When people's careers as musicians draw to a close for whatever reason, people have nervous breakdowns, you know. They feel their life's over. I've spoken mm. to countless musicians. who The experience of going down the dumper, right? I mean, was there any of that with you at all when Kinnicky sort of fizzled out? Well, we, I mean, we split the band up because we didn't want to fizzle out. So we kind of got to a point where we were like, actually, well... Either we can kind of keep going at this and just be playing like the Bristol Fleece and Firkin and stuff, which if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But we can either just keep doing that in perpetuity or, or we can just go and do something else. And I think we just felt like, you know, we wanted to, uh, we all wanted different things. We wanted to go and do something else. Uh, and so we didn't let it get to that point. But it was certainly, yeah, it's a, it's a weird time and it's a weird thing to adjust to and also kind of, you know, there's a lot of strength in the idea of a band. You're like a little family. You know, I always think it's funny that people say about like, musicians and music, or, you know, it's a kind of hedonistic world and everything. But actually, the first thing musicians do is club together and make little families. They build little domestic units. So there is an element of having to leave that, you know, and it's a bit like a divorce or moving moving from home or whatever. It's kind of like a bit bewildering and a bit scary. But, um, I mean, I was only... 20 or 21 so no you know it's not like I was traumatized by it or anything you you did at least toy with the idea and sort of slightly pursue having a solo career as a musician and I singer, did a couple right? of things yeah I did sort of an EP and I did a couple of guest vocals on uh, like Mint Royale track and weirdly that was like your a biggest bigger hit. hit yeah so that was kind of um that was really good fun and I kind of I co-wrote that song so that was that was lovely to write the words and they built a track and then I sang and a melody and well, again was there any it. element of angst or uh, sadness about the fact that that didn't result in you putting out albums or doing it full time not really I'd started doing TV already at that point right at the end of the band I was doing both in parallel I think like a couple of bits 
And I really enjoyed that. And then I, I was going out with a guy who didn't think that was very cool. And then we broke up and I just thought, well, actually, now I don't really have anyone who disapproves. He didn't of, think being on TV was very he cool. He didn't think the TV presenter was, was not very cool. Well, you know, and I can, and it wasn't at the time. I mean, you know, when I was 23, there was not a vacancy for a kind of slightly geeky, thoughtful kind of, you know, blonde girl who likes dressing up and wearing stupid clothes and also listens to can you know that did not exist nobody was nobody was after that you know what I mean so I can see why he thought it wasn't it wasn't cool because it wasn't but I really enjoyed it so um so I just thought oh, I'll, I'll give this a try and just see what happens and so I moved back to London because I'd moved home in, in the interim and uh it just kind of worked out in the course of being in Kinnicky and so on, you didn't go to university. You had a place at Durham offered to mm-hmm. read medieval history. Medieval studies, which okay. is slightly different. It's like a mixture of uh, like literature and history. The Chemical Brothers did it. They've given They're me a both couple, medievalists, given, I know. That was where they met. They were doing a medieval history course. They have given me a couple of catch-up lessons quite late in the evening. But you now move in a world in which, uh, particularly as far as the 10 o'clock show is concerned, I would imagine graduates are in the majority, probably, of the yeah. people who put that show together and so on. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody's more qualified than me. Yeah, I was going to ask you. The runners I mean, who are bringing me cappuccinos and, you know, set up TV stations and stuff. Do you and... feel that? Especially we live in a world now where, you know, the idea is that if we move towards a situation where 50% of kids go to university and they call it uni now and it's seen as being something which, you know, is an Friendly. Ab- absolute write a passage for as many people as possible Mm -hmm. and you had the chops intellectually to do it and for one reason or other you didn't do you still feel that it never felt like such a mystical thing for me because my dad's an academic I kind of saw that side you know that that world through him you know so it it seemed like not like this kind of oh would that I were good enough to touch the hem of the cloak of academia there was never any of that I kind of saw my dad marking degree papers and moaning about the spellings or the fact that the you know this candidate hadn't put their number on the front of of it or whatever so it wasn't kind of a a scary ivory towers thing I always thought I would go as well to be honest is the other side of it I always thought that whatever I was doing now was for the short term it's only in the last couple of years that I think fucking hell this is like it's my job this is weird I always sort of thought like I'd just do this for a bit and then when I when I stopped getting work, I'd go and do a degree. I mean, I still might. In your uh, progress in TV, um, you've seen sort of both sides of it in the sense that you've done pretty mainstream, you know, pop TV CD type UK. thing. CD UK and all Survivor. that. Survivor. And you uh, presented The Culture Show. Yeah. Which is obviously on the more sort of chin-stroking intellectual side of things. Quiff-stroking in the case of... Yeah, and of, you've uh, talked about crowd-rock music Kirby. and that aspect of Six Music, which similarly is not for people who necessarily go out and buy Take That Records. It's a bit more high-end. Mm-hmm. And yet you also have a column in Grazia magazine. I mean, you have got those two sort of aspects of the worlds you seem to I'm inhabit. I'm the shaded area in the Venn diagram, John. What's it like in the Venn diagram, in the <laughs> middle of the shaded area? Of the it's Venn. quite nice. <laughs> I mean, I've got a no-brow approach to... What did you say? No-brow? No-brow approach to kind of culture and music. And, and maybe that's, you know, because I, I never went to university and kind of learned to be a snob or, or anything like that. And maybe it's also, I think it's probably to do with my background more than anything. Um, Explain what you mean. Well, my dad is an academic, right? So he writes books and kind of writes, can do... What's his specialism? He's a sociologist, um, but he can kind of, you know, do some pretty chunky kind of reviews for the uh, Times Higher or whatever about 
about whatever academic books just come out. You know, he's kind of like a clever guy, but he's from a council estate. So um, he, you know, got his uh, he got his um, a scholarship to a grammar school and whatever, and then kind of went to uni and actually got his PhD when I was about four. Um, so I think maybe I just always feel like those things books and culture and art and should be accessible to everyone and if they're not and if people are being snobby and exclusive then actually they're probably dicks aren't they but on the reverse side of it when you write your grazia column or do something which is a little bit more lowbrow is there sort of an ironic aspect are you doing a slight art style nothing lowbrow about my my grazia column harris i will have you retract that i've only skim read your grazia column exactly Um, you're quoting nietzsche every week that's the truth isn't it well you know i mean i certainly don't dumb down my music selections for grazia and i don't think i have to i mean you know i think that's also an assumption that kind of comes out of a, a, a belief that you couldn't really be interested in fashion and the and kind of celebrity stories and some of the more frivolous aspects of Grazia and also have an interest that extends beyond that. Of course, people do. People are people are interesting and complicated and and actually it's fine to enjoy those things. And you might also want to go and listen to a I don't know a weird record or or read a slightly media book and. And for me as well, the music side of it, it's all just pop music. Do you know what I mean? It's not like when I play a can record, I think I'm like empirically a better person or kind of like than when I <laughs> play it. People, well, people, well, people do. People do, but they? they're wrong. You know, they are they are absolutely wrong because that's that's not that's not what it should be about. You feel that when you play a can record, you understand it or you react to it in the same way as if you might play a Girls Aloud record that you like a lot. Um, it's interesting that you use the word understand. I think that there's a, an assumption about certain types of music and I don't think musicians make it very much. It's one of the things that I've found interesting as someone coming from having made music and knowing a lot of musicians into broadcasting. I think it's something that people transpose onto music a lot of the time, which is that if you don't like it, you're just not trying hard enough. Or maybe if you don't like the new album by oh I don't know so the new Radiohead album you, you're just not trying hard enough you're not clever enough to understand it and actually that's wrong you know it's music's about something if it doesn't connect with you then it it should you know it really it really should do something to you it's it's something that's supposed to move you and if a record doesn't do that, it's not doing its job, you know. You're talking about the attitude of the fabled guy in the record shop, really, aren't you? Which it, is which is that sort also, of very haughty idea that it's you that's wrong, not the record. Yeah, and kind of, you know, that I think that extends to other mediums as well. Like, you know, there's a lot of that in in the art world. But again, I haven't found that with a lot of artists that I've met, you know, uh, working on the culture show. I, can't, I sort of think it's like a, it's like a kind of chin-strokey fan thing, maybe. And there's a lot, and obviously you've got to have an element of kind of mythology and ridiculousness around pop music and around art, because otherwise, what's the point of it? That's part of the fun, right? But you know, the downside of that is that it puts people off getting involved, and actually, people should people should trust their own taste, shouldn't they? I'm going to ask you about politics. You were raised in a Labour household. Your mother is a Labour councillor. You're from what some people would understand as a Labour heartland, really, mm-hmm. Sunderland. That's still with you, isn't it? I mean, that still denotes where your politics sit. I think so. I think definitely. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll always be left wing and I I certainly have uh, that kind of background. I mean, 
you know, my one of my granddads was a miner and the other one was a shipbuilder. My mum and dad are both from council estates, but then um, kind of became one an academic and one a, one a teacher and then a, uh, someone who worked in a college. So it's, uh, I kind of have a bit of both. I have like a bit of a kind of middle, cla- middle class upbringing, a middle class nuclear family, but I'm from a place that's broadly working class and from a, a large working class family, so... Yeah, definitely. Obviously, I think I think that does inform your politics. You famously called the Spice Girls Tory scum. <laughs> I know. I feel a bit bad about that. They're quite nice, really. <laughs> but well, only some of them were Tory scum. What in upset me about that was um, in response to uh, Jerry Halliwell's comment that Mrs. Thatcher was the first Spice Girl, which I found depressing and you know upsetting and made me really angry at the time. I mean, I was eighteen when I said that. I wouldn't say that now. Because not everybody who's a Tory is scum, and uh, <laughs> they seem all right. I met them; they were quite nice. Um, but uh, but certainly, I would not say that um, Mrs. Thatcher is anyone I would ever want to uh, kind of mythologise or say did anything other f- for women than mostly bad stuff. Because <laughs> I think while it was great to have a female prime minister. Wow, would have been good if it wasn't her, wouldn't it? Given the fact that your politics are of that kind, doing the 10 o'clock show, which is not sort of politically driven, ideologically driven satire, is it? It's quite sort of even-handed. Mm-hmm. It's not like those political comics in the 80s, you know, your Ben Elton's and all that, who were very, very partisan. Is that a frustration for you that you can't use that side of yourself that much in the 10 o'clock show? No, definitely not. Uh, I think my politics are private and I see my job as a, broadcaster has been pretty straight down the middle I'm you know mostly I do stuff for the BBC and you've got to be non-partisan and is that frustrating no it's absolutely the right thing and I, I understand why that is and I'm very very you know I think it's a really good idea I think you know everybody's paying for the BBC so it has to be unbiased it has to be fair and also you know I'm well aware that people do not want to hear what a TV presenter has to say about um, any political issues of the day. And, you know, neither do I. I want, like, I want MPs who are informed on those subjects to sort them out. That's a very deferential attitude, isn't it? I don't think it's a deferential attitude. Why are your opinions less worthwhile than some Tory MP who happens to have been doing it for a few years? I don't necessarily think that they're worthless. I think it's important to, to have opinions and to be informed personally. But I also think that we're in a culture where, you know, it's a kind of comment-driven, press the red button, everybody's got a blog culture. And actually, I, I think that expert opinions are are really important there's no such thing as an expert political opinion, though, is there? I don't know. I would say there's probably quite a few more expert political opinions than mine knocking around, and I'd rather hear them first. Do you think you'd like an outlet for your political side sooner or later? You've got, I mean, you've got quite, quite a, a story. If, you're, you know, if your grandfather was a miner and you were brought up in a Labour household in Sunderland, it's not like you've just adopted that as a... <laughs> You know, like some politicians do when they get to university. That that's like other people in church. It defines quite a large part of who you are, then, doesn't it? I think it does, but I also feel like the outlet for that is is the way you vote, isn't it? And I think that's the pro- that's the appropriate outlet. We're in a democracy, so you, you know, you you go and you cast your vote, and you believe in what you believe, and of course, it does. It kind of affects how you act, and you know, I kind of feel like governments and should support people who are vulnerable, and that's a really important thing to me and and maybe 
you know, say today there was a strike at the BBC. I mean, I'm not in a union, it wasn't my union, but I wouldn't cross a picket line, so I didn't go in, maybe maybe other people did. Um, so you'd certainly act according to your conscience um, and you vote according to your conscience as well and I think that's the right outlet for it. I'm not burning to get up on a soap soapbox and start kind of spouting off about stuff. I'm not a shouty kind of person. That's the other funny thing, like, I, I mean... I think in a weird way, you know, your question at the beginning about like being being a woman and, and it usually being in the minority on the kind of things I work on is one of the few assumptions that people have once you get there and once you're on those things is that to get there, you must be a shouty kind of like ballsy. Yeah, you know, kind of boy, boy, girl hybrid who's and I'm not really that type of person. I think I'm a, I think I'm a, an inquisitive person. I'm an interested person. Um and and people sometimes expect me to be kind of shouty and full of invective and it's just not really how how I am. Let me ask you to close about Six Music. We talked about the listenership and so on. Obviously, the big event in the last sort of 18 months of Six Music's life was when the axe was hanging over it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then, in six months. Yeah, miraculously, it got pulled back. That was weird, yeah. How was it... Because you had to work for a period under the, in the understanding that that was it soon, right? Yeah. Weirdly, the news that we were going to be scrapped broke just before my show. And then the reprieve broke on my show. So I had to make, well, I had to not refer to the first thing and then make the second announcement uh, that it was all going to be OK, um, which were two very strange days at work. Um, yeah, it was it was hard, actually, more for people who were there full time I mean I do other work as well I'm a freelance um, and what I was really sad and really didn't want the station to close but certainly you know if you're working there full time it was it was really tough for people in the office and stuff You work in music at a time at which a lot of people say that a lot of the life has sort of disappeared from music you know it's been a long time since we had anything that even started to be compared to punk rock or acid house or any of those things and that things are very sort of quiet and the cutting edge isn't the cutting edge anymore and everything's mired in nostalgia and retro mania and all it's that a, it's a funny time you think that well i think it's an interesting time i mean i have a theory that it's to it's post internet so it's to do with everything kind of instant suddenly becoming lateral right so music is not you know it's not kind of this it's not cyclical and it's also not these kind of waves of movements coming. It's it's an, a, a lateral landscape. So you have a lot of weird things happening where, you know, people are going on to be pop stars for much longer than they would have. I mean, why why did Elbow win the Mercury Prize the same year that Take That had a big revival? You know, it's not, it's actually to do with a broader thing about about who's consuming music. Music's more accessible. So, you know, the consumer base is kind of larger and more dispersed. And I think that has a lot of, that has a lot of kind of effects. And one of those is that you don't get these kind of concentrated waves of, right, there's an acid house movement now, there's a there's a this, there's a that. But equally, you know, there's still incredibly exciting music being made. And, and actually, as a thing, we're in the middle of a wave, but it's just a weird wave and we haven't seen that that hasn't happened to the music What's business What's the wave before. we're in the middle well, of? It is that. It is that post-internet kind of everything recalibrating and working out what the future's going to be. And so there's lots of little things happening that are interesting. And I see that, you know, and I'm I'm kind of not a nostalgic person at all. I'm, I'm much more, I'm always looking for the next thing and thinking about, you know, I always hope the best is yet to come for everything. Talking of which, to finish, mm-hmm. 
you have said that music is partisan. It's a sort of partisan business. It's about who's your favourite. Yes. Right now, who's yours? Oh, right now. Well, it changes every day. I'm really into, having said I'm not a nostalgic person, really into a band called the Bandana Splits from Brooklyn who are uh, fronted by the singer-songwriter called Dawn Landis who's done some very kind of country stuff. And they're like a, a three-piece vocal girl group who are um, kind of a redux of like uh, the Phil Spector kind of wall of sound girl groups, but also like a little bit of Andrew's sisters in there. And they're, they're very cool. I really like them. So I will go away and listen to the bandana splits. I'm not sure you like them, but I like them. We'll give it a go. <laughs> They're my favourite. <laughs> I don't think they'll be yours. Lauren Laverne, thank you very much. Thank you. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.